This is exactly right. Laughing with someone is as close as you can get to somebody else, often without touching them. And actually laughing together, the intimacy that comes when you're really looking at somebody and laughing with them, where you're just actually, even with a podcast, when you're laughing, those times when, when you're sitting by yourself laughing across space and time, you've just had an intimate experience with somebody. They reached you, they got you, and you're sharing that laughter with them. That's that's a sense of community. That's a connection with another human being that that reestablishes our sense of humanity and therefore makes us stronger in the world to be able to carry whatever. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Falling Isn't Failing and Humor is Healing with our esteemed guest, Dr. Gina Bereka. Hailed as smart and funny by people, Gina was deemed a feminist humor maven by Ms. She's written for most major publications, including the New York Times, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Cosmopolitan, and the Harvard Business Review. Gina has appeared often as a repeat guest on 2020, The Today Show, CNN, the BBC, NPR, and Oprah to discuss gender, power, politics, and humor. Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor at UConn, as well as winner of its highest award for excellence in teaching, Gina has written 10 books, including the best-selling They Used to Call Me Snow White, But I Drifted. Her latest book, Fast Fallen Women has just been released. We are going to talk about that and many other things today. The collection of 75 essays is part of Gina's popular Fast Women series, which also includes Fast Funny Women and Fast Fierce Women. Gina grew up in Brooklyn and Long Island and lives with her husband in Stores, Connecticut. Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. So I'm just going to say the personal connection because this sets the stage. So um, you are a very important person and mentor in our producer, Laura Rossi's life. And what she says about you, um, so many, as I've learned about you, say about you, uh, the impact that you have had on so many students and particularly women over decades, and you stay connected with them. It's one of the great things about teaching is that when people ask if I have children, as as women are always asked, men are sometimes incidentally asked, increasingly asked, but women are always asked, so do you have any children? And I say, I, I'm, I have two wonderful uh, stepsons who are at that absolutely adorable age where they're both attorneys mm. and they're so cute. 
when they get to the attorney stage, you know, you buy them just little adorable socks and they pay their own mortgage and they yes. have their own spouses. They're just so cute. And then I have thousands of kids, all of whom have gone to college and I don't have to pay any of their loans. And um, so Laura Rossi, who is, uh, was in the first class, I believe, that I ever taught. Mm. When I started in 1987, um, it was certainly in the first year. She was at my wedding 32 years ago. And she is the, she's exactly who I would have chosen as family. And I think that as, you know, the old shibboleth has it, there's the family that we're given and there's the families that we make. And so Laura has certainly been a daughter, a niece, a stepdaughter, a cousin, whatever you want to call it, you whatever you want to name it, yes. um, has been an essential young person in my life. And one of the nice things is that, of course, she will always remain a young woman to me. So I think that's one of the reasons Laura really appreciates She appreciates me. that. I know she appreciates that, <laughs> among so many other many things. Other. <laughs> yes, yes. So I was wondering, when when did you realize your love and calling for English, writing, literature, and eventually professorhood? Boy, not until late in life, which is one of the reasons, or certainly later than a lot of my colleagues, I won't say late in life, but um, when I graduated, I was one of the first women to, I was one of the first people in my family to go to college. Um, my older brother went before I did. He's six years my senior. Um, and But we were, I was the only girl in my, my extended Italian family, um, Sicilian family, to graduate from high school in a timely fashion. That is not <laughs> what women did. Women mm -hmm. got pregnant, got married, usually in that order. And, you know, that's what they were supposed to do. That was their job. Men were supposed to stay single as long as possible and um, have sex as soon as possible. And women were supposed to get married as soon as possible and not have sex for as long as possible. So it's astonishing that anything worked out at all, actually. <laughs> and um, But I had terrific teachers in, in high school. My mom um, died fairly young and when I was pretty young. And so um, teachers really uh, took an interest in me. And I think that's one of the reasons that I saw teaching as such an important avocation, but I didn't want to be one. Mm -hmm. I did not grow up thinking, oh, I want to be in the classroom. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And there was no pathway apart from the very traditional and for a lot of women in my family, unhappy choice of marrying young, settling down, um, and and not having a plan for their own lives apart from that. They didn't feel like they had options. I had options, but I didn't know what to do with them. So I went to college on a scholarship. I was one of the first women to go to Dartmouth College up in Hanover, New Hampshire. And in 1975, Hanover, New Hampshire, um, was um, a wilderness. I mean, it hmm. was. I was, as a Sicilian, I think I was the only um, Sicilian ever to be on the Hanover Dartmouth campus, apart from Michael Corleone in The Godfather. <laughs> yeah. And he yes. was fictional. And Mario Puzo put him at Dartmouth on the GI Bill to get him as far away from everything he ever knew as possible. And so that's where I was in 1975. Mm. I had no idea what I was doing there. And um, and when Mike told my aunts I'm going to college in New Hampshire, they assumed that um, that again I was pregnant, and that's why I was leaving to go mm -hmm. out of state. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well. 
I got nine months before anybody expects me back. I might as well have a good time, you know? So I'm, I'm, I enjoyed my time. And then I started to enjoy getting an education. But by the time I graduated, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I think that actually makes me a good college professor because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did not always do well in school. I'm terrible at math. I, um, I worked my tail off in high school. I went to a big public high school on Long Island, Oceanside High School. And um, I tried, I, I would reverse numbers. I know that it's it's sort of like a numerical dyslexia. I'm sure there's a term yes. for it. Dyscalculia. Yes. Dyscalculia. Okay. So that's yes. what I've got. They didn't have a name for it. Then. They did not back. No, they did, they not, did not, back not. then. No. And they just kept saying she's not trying hard enough. And I would work and work and I couldn't achieve mastery over it. But I knew that wasn't because of a lack of effort. And I, I can bring that to my classroom and to the young people I work with, because a lot of them have to deal with instructors at whatever age. Teachers are often people who have never failed in school. Mm-hmm. They stay in that world because they have always achieved excellence. They've always gotten an A. And I've come away with C minuses that were a triumph that I felt mm-hmm. like, I got away with it. This is great. You know, I don't have to take the course again. I didn't fail. And, um, it wasn't until I was I, I finished at Dartmouth, I got a fellowship to go to Cambridge um, University in England, and I was back in New York City, and I was working a, a corporate job for um, ABC and writing in-house stuff. I still didn't know what I was going to do, and I'd always loved literature. I loved writing, but I, I didn't think I could ever be a writer. That was for fancier people than me, mm-hmm. and um and I, a friend of mine was teaching at Queens College as an adjunct and said, you know, with your Cambridge degree, you could teach here. And I needed the money. And so I went in to start teaching in the evening as an adjunct. And after my day job, I take the train out to the subway out to Queens. And I loved it. I walked mm. into that classroom. And it's the way that, you know, princesses in Disney movies feel when they see the beast across the room or something. It's like, I loved it. I loved what I was doing. I enjoyed it. I knew I couldn't teach in high school because I, I couldn't um, have the, the control over a classroom and intellectual discipline that I needed to be able to work well mm-hmm. uh, in that setting. So that's when I thought, okay, I think I have to do this because I really like it. Turns out I'm good at it. And this is like, you know, fate flings down a, a gauntlet with a gift in it, a mm-hmm. Victorian poet said. So it's like, it's a challenge. Um, it's a gift, but it comes with a challenge. So it's like, okay, you're going to do this. And then everything else comes with it. So I backed into my career. And then I discovered I could really both write the academic books and the trade books. And, and you know, I worked really hard and I got very lucky. We'll we'll uh, we'll attribute it to a little more than than luck, but I I under I understand what you're saying. It's like how we fall into certain situations when we are more when we find something, and then there becomes this more this flow of sorts. So like we kind of like get in the fast lane. Obviously, we've been in the slow lane. We're in traffic. We're grinding, and then something happens, and it just gets a little easier. Even the hard work is easier when it's hard work towards something which is. Uh, a purpose, purpose driven. Yeah, that's a very nice way to put it. Yeah. Or it's almost like getting off, you know, getting off the highway and taking a more circuitous route. Yes, yes. And I then like realizing, that. in fact, that gets you to where you want to go mm-hmm. better. Yes. And then staying in the the lanes that were prescribed originally. 
And there's there's so many important messages in what you just said, Gina. And I know one of our you know themes is about failing and how do we handle yep. failing for growth and we and humor, of course. Is there's this era, as you know, as well as anyone in being a professor these days, the pressure and the intensity on students starting probably in middle school in many places and high school to get this GPA and these crazy GPAs, which are like beyond the, the numbers, you know, it used to go to 4.0. Now it goes to 5.0. I'm sure they'll find a way for it to go to a 6.0. And the pressure of the grade to define the person to get into the school, which supposedly is going to determine the rest of your life. And Yes, people will say, well, things were different back then and it was easier to get in. Yeah, like I agree. Like, I don't think I'd get into the college I went to now. I wouldn't actually now. <laughs> so things things have changed. However, there are still, it, it's who you are and, and what you care about and where you put your time and your energy so much more than a GPA and an A. It, it's just what you said is, you know, should be like on a tea towel and given to parents and to students. Um, when for the the new book, which I, uh, again, is Fast Fallen Women, when I've been talking to groups and they've been saying, what is, because the writers go from age 20 to age 87. Mm -hmm. And so it's 75 essays from women from genuinely diverse backgrounds. So that we've got, you know, Pulitzer Prize winner, Jane Smiley wrote for the book, Bobby Ann Mason, Amy Tan, they were all pieces they wrote just for Fallen. And um, then, but there were a lot of young writers, a lot of emerging writers. And so people have said, okay, so what's the difference between, you know, for young women, when for women, I, and I'm 66, so for women my age or in my category, which is, you know, too old for work study and too young for cremation, you know, that <laughs> <laughs> my age, people my age, um, that, you know, it was mostly sexual. I mean, it was like a fallen, you know, if you fell, it was somehow you transgressed sexually, you broke some taboos about that. Um, but for young people today, for especially young women today, but I see it too with the boys, um, that it is this idea of perfection. They carry, they have to, they think they need to be perfect in all these different ways. Mm -hmm. And I was just saying recently to a student, I mean, she was saying, you know, I, I, I need to say, I can't say I want to be pretty. I have to say I want to be healthy, but I need to be pretty. Um, I just can't admit it. So mm -hmm. I have to see, I have to seem natural. I can't put up because I don't want to seem fake, but I, all my makeup that I put on is to make me seem natural. I want, I want, I'm really ambitious. You know, she wants to go to medical school. I'm really ambitious. I want to be, you know, the best in my classes, but I can't seem aggressive because that's unattractive. And I can't seem like I'm trying to get ahead of other people because then I'm not community minded. And I need to make sure that other people have as much right to achievement as I do, but I need to be better than they are. And, I, and she started to go through this whole- oh, but My chest is tightening as you're talking. <laughs> No, yes. and they were saying all I needed to do was like pass the courses, not fall down in the high heels that I was wearing, or my ankles were bleeding at the end, and you know get get mascara that didn't clump. I mean, I had a far more limited range. I needed to, you know, to to finish school, get a job, you know, find something that had dental. You know, that was my. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine who actually works for let's just say a major publication. And I was saying to her, I said, you know, 
I, I tell them they can be as creative as they want. Sure, write a novel, but have a job that gives you dental. She said, don't tell them that. Nobody gives dental anymore. And I said, oh, come on. She said, no. She said, mm-hmm. we don't give dental. We mm-hmm. don't give dental and we don't do um, optical. And I said, but you work for insert name of yes. the publication. And she said, no, we withdrew those benefits for new employers, the employees. And I was like, okay, then, then, mm-hmm. then really, then just go work for CVS and everybody needs mm-hmm. to just, you know, because you can't, and that's why you can't, um, we can't put pressures mm-hmm. on young people mm-hmm. to achieve in these ways because their world is going to look so entirely different from the way our world looks now that we're mm-hmm. still putting our requirements for their achievement. It's right. based on what we should have been doing or thinking, you know, parents are now in their forties or fifties of what they thought their achievement should look like. Their kids' achievements are going to look very different. And I think just what you're saying, Dr. Dan, and what, you know, I've been listening to the podcast and looking at what you've done and the guests that you've had, it's all about finding who the person is. Mm-hmm. inside the child as right. opposed to making the child right the person. yes totally and um gosh i have so much so much to say i just want to say the your book um as a man reading the essays it was so enlightening i felt almost as i was peering in to <laughs> you know i was getting to peer into a world that i i was invited into because i was given the book right but it was also like wow this is a whole diff- this is a whole raw authentic van- vantage point into being a woman the different experiences of womanhood the unrealistic expectations um, related to men and women and sexuality and decision-making. And then seeing a few of your authors who have been on the show, I was really, it was just so wonderful um, knowing some of them that um, it it was, it was really, I felt like a privilege to be invited in and for these women to, to bear their souls. I mean, right. These are deep, heavy, uh, several could look to me like diary, you know, like writing in one's journal and diary that you just keep to yourself or with your best friend. And I'm wondering about that process. Did it become what you expected it to become in in the process? I know this is the third, uh, or has it evolved into something more than you expected? Well, it's a great question. Um, the, the series, the fast women series, I mean, I thought it would be one book. And again, this is where keeping in touch with your former students is, um, you never know where that'll go. The publisher, Woodhull Press, is was started in part by one of my former students. So, it, you know, it's it's great. You, I, I feel like, you know, it's it's wonderful to, you know, I'm growing them from stem cells. It's like my <laughs> publisher. <laughs> I got editors. <laughs> you know, this is really great. It's just you have a whole empire. You have it's, a literary empire. It's a diaspora. You know, yes, it's, yes. it's a wonderful thing. But it's worth it. And I tell them, you know, in um, in the the best way I can, I said, you know, it's up to you to keep in touch with me. I can't stalk you after you graduate. You have to be in touch with me. This has to, you know, it's inappropriate for me. I don't want to be like a character out of Nabokov. You know, I'm not going to follow you where you go. You have to stay in touch with me. And again, I have Facebook pages for them and they stay in touch with each other and they offer each other jobs. I mean, it's it's a lovely network of uh, mm-hmm. extended family of people who have been in the classes. But um, 
the the book started out as one volume because of my work on humor, which has been both the focus of my um, my trade work, my popular books, and um, and my academic research of uh, the difference in, in terms of gender and humor. Why, especially why women hate the Three Stooges? Why women do not you know do not look at videos titled "Guy Runs Into the Wall for Fun," <laughs> and why I look that up as an example. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe there's that. It has a, there is that actually. I mean, I said it as a joke, and it exists. Guy runs into Wolf Run. It had something like 131 million views or something. And I thought, and then I looked up something from the Women's History Museum of like foot, you know, footage of suffragettes on the day they received the vote, and it had like 53 vote, you know, views. Wow. Guy runs into the wall for fun. Yeah. Yeah. The day women got the vote, here's the actual footage. Says a lot about our male species. <laughs> says a lot about our culture. Yeah. And the town says, as what we turn to for illumination, what we what we look at, what we need to feel informs us, what makes our day better. No, we're not going to look at the triumph of, you know, the, the soul and spirit of community. You look at this guy, he's running into the wall for fun. I mean, <laughs> It's really, it's astonishing. So anyway, that's, luckily, that's what I've chosen to do for my life's work. But um, so for the, the the first two books, again, these are all short pieces. So they're all under 750 words. So they're stuff, they're, they're um, a complete works um, of uh, writing, nonfiction that can be read over a cup of coffee while you're waiting in the car to pick somebody up, your kids mm -hmm. like Jean mm -hmm. Kerr and... Um, and Irma Bobek, two brilliant women humorists, said that they they wrote all of their columns um, while waiting for things to happen, while waiting hmm. for the kid to get out of, you know, while they're waiting, watching their kid at a game, while they're waiting to pick up their kid after an event, while they're, I mean, some point of while they're waiting for a cup of coffee at a drive-thru that everything is done while waiting. So these could all be read while somebody is waiting. You can finish 750 words while you're doing, in a way, something else. But for this last book, Unfallen, I did ask the contributors to sort of press themselves a little further. Um, and, and again, some of them are very funny. And often some of the ones that are most heartbreaking are also funny. Mm -hmm. Because humor and heartbreak really go together. As mm -hmm. um, many comics um, have said over time, that pain plus time equals humor. Mm-hmm. That the stories that the, as the English would say, that we dine off of. If you ask, if I do a corporate gig, mm -hmm. and um, which I'm often asked to do, like after a sexual harassment lawsuit, you know, right. they suddenly they decide right. They right. to have me in, and there'll be a banner saying, yeah. you know, "Dr. Gina Bareka's sexual harassment." training and and some guys think i'm there to help them do it better and i have to explain that that's not how it works you know is that learning that harass is one word that's that's how we start and they have to write it out you know it's always and um so they 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 look at um the the idea of how uh the stories that we tell about ourselves um, in these workshops, I, I have to look at the way the stories we tell about ourselves um, are often based on some terrible thing that happened to us. Mm -hmm. If I ask a group, male or female, both, everybody, whatever, what's the what's your favorite story about your childhood? Very few people, very few people are going to say, talk about something happy that happened to them. Mm. 
So tell me your childhood story. What's the story? It's going to be about being left at the gas station by the parents. Mm -hmm. They're one of six kids and the parents left them. We're halfway through Indiana before they mm -hmm. realized Brenda wasn't there and they had to turn back and get Brenda. Okay. Mm -hmm. Brenda's sitting in the gas station, but she felt confident. She said, I knew at some point somebody would notice I wasn't there just before cell phones. Mm -hmm. they were, they were in a station wagon. You know. um, but that her story, I mean, that could turn into some novel about abandonment and she could have been sold for parts, you know, and abducted and whatever, but she didn't. She just sat, she had a little book. She was reading the Bobby twins. She waited until, you know, they returned. Mm -hmm. um, but it's usually about something terrible that happened. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody, you know, they're, they're, they were, they, again, they were, um, they were left behind. They were made sad by something. They peed in the wrong bathroom at school and got made fun of, you know, some, some story that you go, oh, but you turn that story into something else. You make it your, that incident into a story and you make it mm -hmm. something else. You make it, you make it not just something that happened to you, but something you have control over because you make a story out of it. Mm -hmm. And you know the psychology behind that and your mm -hmm. other guests have yeah. talked about the psychology yeah. behind that. It's the whole idea of creating the narrative around the incident so that you can feel control over it. So mm -hmm. this is what happened, but what's your version of it? Because mm -hmm. once you have your version of it, it becomes yours. Yes, You're rewriting not, the narrative, rewrite I, the narrative. Uh, and that, you know, I mean, and that it really does, it rewires your mm -hmm. brain to think of it in another mm -hmm. way. And so that you don't become just the random object of the universe's desire to inflict pain. Mm -hmm. You don't become the scapegoat for the family or you don't become whatever that is. You become somebody who has a kind of agency. Mm -hmm. You become, okay, this happened, but this is how I handled it. Right, right. I What I got through and through was this the themes of shame of guilt and then through the process of rewriting of healing and liberation and and actual and strength mm -hmm. on on the other side and these are themes of these are themes of mental health issues mental illness abortion affairs um you know, letting people down, not showing up, uh, bullying, right? All of, of course, all of the real things that humans experience and women in particular can experience. And just at the end of them, so many, I just felt, you know, our, their arms are raised up with, 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 with strength at the mm -hmm. end of owning this part of themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I th that, thank you. I'm really glad that you felt that because I think a lot of the writers wanted to to make that exactly. In fact, I'll show you, I have right here the, the cover to the um, uh, the first book, as you mentioned, was called, they used to call me Snow White, but I drifted, but here's a little version of it. This is- Oh, hands, um, hand up. Like Liza Donnelly, yes. who's a New Yorker cartoonist, did the cover. And I said, can you give me a seditious Snow White? So there's Snow White with her outfit. I mean, and you could clearly yes. still have, you've got her fist yes. in the air, you know, raised up there with the headband. I mean, it's, it's exactly what you describe. Um, but it is, it's the idea that all human beings, obviously, um, regardless of gender assignment, um, are flawed creatures, but women for so long have, um, supposed to, um, been able to at least appear perfect. Uh, to appear 
unflappable, to be ladylike. I mean, to be ladylike is to mm-hmm. be invisible, mm-hmm. not to scream, cry, you know, um, pull out your hair, bare your teeth, bare your soul, to transgress, to do anything that would bother anybody else. Um, femininity in the most sort of conservative senses, now I'm not talking politically, I'm talking cultural um, sort of ideation, is to erase the self. I mean, that mm-hmm. is it's a complete erasure so that a woman feels that she is there only to be the vehicle for other people around her. Our job is to make other people happy. My job is to make my husband happy. Um, I don't think my husband would disagree with that assignment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, but, but it's fine. As far as I'm concerned, his job is to make me happy. We do a good job of it for 32 years. But it, but it was supposed to be my only job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and to make sure that no one, no one, in, especially no man in any way, was inconvenienced by my needs or desires, um, ambitions, or, um, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of wishes that, that I, women always had to come last, right? Every, no, 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 mm-hmm. you go first. You ever, if women can't even take a compliment, right? right? You know this, right? right? Yeah. You know right. that if you compliment a woman, you have to get ready for a fight, Mm-hmm. Right, that you go up to a woman and you say, "I love what you did with your hair." She'll say, "Are you kidding? Look what they did! Look, look what they did here! This is terrible! It's uneven! It's asymmetrical!" And this is where men say that you know they're afraid to compliment women anymore, and it's not because of the sexual harassment lawsuit. They just don't want to stand there for forty-five minutes while you explain why they're wrong. They just want to say, "Hey, Griselda, you look good today," and there's like, "No, I look terrible today. What's wrong with you?" And it's like, it's like. You can't win. Yeah, you can't exactly. win for losing. Exactly. And but we have to stop. We have to stop um allowing this to seem like normal behavior. And one way to call people on it is through humor. Yes. You know, is to yes. stop. Just to say, no, I'm not I'm not fighting with you. All right. You look, you shouldn't have been a lad out of the house. I'm I'm surprised that your phone recognized you when you picked it up and it's, you know, <laughs> you know, somebody a friend of mine just said, you know, that as long as her phone recognizes her face, she can leave. She's as long as that looks good. That she's past the point of looking in the mirror and checking everything. It's just like if the phone does facial recognition, she's fine. Then she's okay. preparing for this conversation and looking on your website, lo and behold, there's some videos. You're doing stand-up, which, of course, like, it's just, as I'm getting to know you, it's just a natural part of who you are. And the one, the little clip of the the ladies on the beach and who's looking at what parts, I mean, I was, like, I was laughing out loud by myself in my office. So when did, so when did humor come into... I mean, I'm guessing humor has been in your life for a long time. When did you become aware of this as something you wanted to intentionally cultivate? That's, again, thank you for asking. And in fact, I never think of myself as doing stand-up. I, I think I'm, I admire people who do stand-up. I mean, when I was doing the research for 
for Snow White that came out in 91. I mean, I was going to, um, you know, comedy clubs in New York and listening. I mean, Joy Behar was just coming out. Sarah, uh, Sarah Silverman was, she was probably in ninth grade. Um, Susie Essman, who of course was on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, and, you know, all of these fabulous comics, Laura Keitlinger, who went on to work for Saturday Night Live. Um, and, you know, they would be on at two o'clock in the morning. And, hmm. And I, I mean, the, the, and I'm so glad that you watched the video, the bathing suit season at TJ Maxx. Mm-hmm, um, yes. And that was done. I, I can't do stand up because it's, there are very few things that I, I wouldn't feel capable of getting up in front of a group and doing. But to get up in front of drunk dentists at 2 a.m., you know, I, I have a two book minimum rather than a two drink minimum. <laughs> so that was at the National Speakers Association in San mm-hmm. Diego. Mm. And, so that was um, that was a, a different routine, but I'm so glad that it came across that way. And it is, you know, it's all I do. I always say this: I can't write fiction. Um, I I could only write nonfiction, and mm-hmm. all I I don't invent anything. I simply pay attention mm-hmm. and yes. um, and and remember things because if you you frame things, so humor is all about the framing of an incident, and that you can you, you know what's it there are some things that can be only tragic. I've been on many scholarly panels about this completely unserious, uh, completely serious panels about comedy, you know, um, and um, where people are arguing seriously about whether something could be funny or not. And um, there are, there are very few topics that can't be, um, that can't be made the subjects of humor Mm-hmm. Uh, I would argue that there are none because mm-hmm. humor is a way again of surviving and of making it of alchemy, transforming straw into gold. It changes the property, the essential mm-hmm. properties of something into something else. It's transformative. I see it as redemptive. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it came from having a tough, um, you know, I've never faced a tougher house than my family. Um, I have never, you know, my, I, I was the, the girl with the big mouth who was told to be quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was, again, my mother was, um, now she, she would be died in the same that I, I would, I would be diagnosed with dyscalculia. Yes. Um, My mother would have been diagnosed, I realized with, um. Good, uh, severe clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And by the end of her life, um, she wasn't leaving the house. She was agoraphobic. She was a profoundly um, unhappy woman and, and isolated and um, sort of friendless. And, um, and she, she actually was French Canadian and she had moved down to live with my father's family in Brooklyn. So she had all the in-law issues and she was always mm-hmm. the outcast and the outsider and she felt very much exiled in the middle of this larger, hectic, chaotic family. She was the one that was always marginalized. And I think that she felt that uh, both my brother and um, I were her, um, um, I don't know, her shields mm-hmm. against the rest of the family as a way to protect her and also great sources of comfort to her and a, and a way of connecting her to um, the outside world. So I think for both of us, um, again, my brother might disagree. I wrote, when I wrote 
the introduction to, I did the um, Penguin Book of Italian American uh, writing called Don't Tell Mama. And um, I wrote the introduction and my brother wrote a rebuttal to my introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I I negotiated it with Penguin and Publishers Weekly when they reviewed the book said, we've never seen this before. Yeah, I've never seen that. That's, that's, yeah. (laughs) And so I do this long, like, you know, sort of scholarly introduction offering a context for 500 pages of Italian American writing. And my brother comes in and says, you know, there's my sister, you know, the big shot scholar. Don't, she doesn't know anything. We never told her anything. Don't listen. She thinks she knows the stories, but she doesn't. Mm. And so that's how I grew up was, mm-hmm. was being treated with this. But my job as a kid, and I, I bet your listeners and people in your audience will understand this, um, being the one who was meant to entertain. My mother. I was supposed to my make job. Her, make her happy. Make yeah, her happy. Make her happy. That was that was my job. And mm-hmm. um, while that was not communicated to me by contract, it was certainly um, um, it was certainly a, a vow mm-hmm. that I took without understanding that I was entering into um, mm-hmm. that relationship, um, that unchanging relationship. And of course. Um, things, you know, your relationships with your parents don't necessarily change that much after they die. And you still have a relationship with your parents, whether they're Mm -hmm. there or not. And um, so I realized that, um, that I could, it took me a long time to recognize that that was not something I could always do. And it's taking me, I'm still in therapy, thank God. Mm-hmm. And I have mm-hmm. dental. Your teeth look great. Thank you very much. Actually, my teeth look great because I grew up next door to Judge Judy on Ocean for, Avenue. It was my for next real. For Judge real. Judy. Judge oh, Judy. Judy, Judy. Shineland. And yeah. her father, Murray Blum, was my dentist. We oh. could not have afforded to um, have the quality of dental care that we had, except that we were um, Murray Blum's neighbors. And so he nice. looked at our teeth. And uh, Judy actually wrote a piece for the first book. She's in Fast Fallen Woman and talks about her dad being our dentist. <laughs> so <laughs> we, really, we went to her birthday. I mean, she, we're friends. So Judy, that, oh. and she's, she's one of the few people who make me seem laconic. Mm. Um, so yeah, we learned to on. So you asked where the sense of humor came from. Yes. If you weren't funny on my block, they killed you. I mean, so not only was I, um, you know, I learned to be funny from my family. Being funny on in Brooklyn, Sur- survival. In, yeah, in in the sixties was that was it. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you would otherwise never be heard. You would never be. It was the only way you got a word in, especially if you were a girl, because you mm-hmm. couldn't fight your way out of stuff, or you couldn't bully your way out of it. But if you were funny, and you could, that's what I realized. If you were funny, you could get somebody to listen. Mm-hmm. Even if they didn't want to, mm-hmm. they meant they paid attention to you. If they laughed, it meant you got them, whether or not they wanted to be gotten. You've written, uh, you've written about the loss of your mom and also the loss of um, another, uh, your friend's mom, who was a mom to yeah. you, which of course brings all of that back. How uh, help us? How do we bring in humor? to deal with the difficulty of life. You know, as we record, we have a lot of difficulty going on in the world right now and a lot of heartbreak and unthinkable. And I, you know, my too soon probably for humor, but how do we, 
how do we embrace humor to cope and to heal and to move on? Uh, again, very important idea. And two of the funniest, the most immediate, savagely funny professional groups that I've ever dealt with or worked with or, or know people in are on the ground journalists and medical personnel. You cannot work like in a Doctors Without Borders. I've got, you know, the friends mm -hmm. who do that kind of work and the nurses who go out into the field, both again, men and women, and the journalists who are reporting. Mm -hmm. you know, and I've known people who've done this now for 40 years. They are, they, the jokes that would come, I mean, through them over the phone long before the internet. And I don't, I don't even know what they do now, how they keep it private because mm -hmm. it would be, I, I would hear some of this and it would be like, that's, you can't say that. This would be the people who would be saying, right. don't post that. Don't exactly. post that. These yes. are the people who are saving lives. These are the people who are doing everything. These are literally the front lines, but the way these people who are actually taking it, you know, like who are, who are, you know, in hazmat gear and who are wearing protective gear because they're in danger of being shot. They're in danger of death. Um, as they're trying to help the world are making the worst jokes, making all the jokes about death and illness and savagery. And cause that's a mechanism that it lets you breathe. I mean, there's yeah. all this, I mean, I'm not going to get into right. it. I mean, other people yeah. know it better than I do, but you can, there's all this emphasis where you can find articles emphasizing the physical benefits of laughter that it does. It, 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 it gets your dopamine and your serotonin going. It gets, it makes you breathe differently. It lets you, it's a kind of, um, automatic, um, instinctive form of medication. And, you know, it's almost like a, a humor is almost like a Buddhist realization that, you know, everything is impermanent, everything is connected and that you have to pay attention. And that's mm -hmm. sort of the basis of humor is right. to understand. I mean, humor makes you see that the world is connected, that you are out of control. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that you have, therefore you have to pay attention all the time. And that's where, you know, it, it's not like, it's not like letting everything go. It's like paying attention evenly. Mm. You know? And that's a very, it's not a form of release. It's a form. And again, I'm, I, I have, you know, an ertzat spiritual sort of, you know, understanding of things. I, I'm not, I was raised as a Roman Catholic, but I'm a recovering Catholic. I can't mm -hmm. do anything else, but I can't do it without harm to myself on a regular mm -hmm. basis. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, that humor really is um, about redemption, that humor allows us to redeem moments that would otherwise be lost to despair, to tragedy, mm -hmm. to misery, to self-indulgence, to this kind of wallowing in, in what could every day be the worst day of things for us. Mm -hmm. um, everybody can choose. I mean, there are choices and there are days that, you know, there are days you can't make a choice. There are days when, as in, in fastball and women, there are days when getting up and taking a shower are the days of enormous triumph. Mm-hmm. Right. And there were days when you can do everything and you talk to everybody and you get things done and make things happen and you're helping other people do stuff. And that's terrific. Those might be a perfectly ordinary day and good for you. That's great. But I, I have had, and I, again, I, I know I'm not alone in this, that there are days when like I got up and I made my bed and I fed myself. And mm -hmm. those are the days that I should get an award for. 
Mm-hmm. Those are the days that really mattered. Like I did no harm to anyone else or myself. And it's mm-hmm. like, I, I need a star for this. Like I need, there should yeah. be a ceremony by the end of the day that I got through this. Mm-hmm. And that that's, that's something to recognize. And in our best moments to say, good for you. You know, yeah. you didn't, <laughs> you didn't right. destroy anything today. Well done, honey. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know? I'm also hearing how humor going full circle in our conversation, how humor is another way to rewrite and reauthor and re-narrative in a sense, a new narrative to an event with, with laughter and with the dopamine, right. And just to, to make light of something which obviously has many heavy undertones. Right. And that making, making light is, there's a wonderful line from, I think it was GK Chesterton was a, an old poet that says angels fly because they take themselves lightly, mm-hmm. yep. which is a, a great line. But mm-hmm. this isn't, it's, it's, this is more like shining light because mm. it doesn't, it, it doesn't remove the weight or undercut the idea of how much weight there is. It just makes you feel that there are other hands around you to carry it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't say, Oh, stop taking yourself so seriously. It mm-hmm. says, wow. You're in the middle of all the rest of this. You know, let me, let me, that's really, yeah. I don't know how you're survival. Let me help you with this. Look, did you ever think of looking at it this way? These are just, it's another way to make you feel like you're not alone. Right. I have, um, there's a, a, another book that I'm working on. I'm, I'm doing the next in the Fast Women series is Fast Famous Women, but I'm also doing something called Gina School which are the things that I've learned. And I've got a, a former student, another, again, another former student who's illustrating it. It's a brilliant nice. And, um, but that one of the things that I, I put up often on my Facebook page, which I hope maybe some of your, your, um, uh, the we're going to, we're going to, we're going to point yeah, them in that, that direction. Idea. Yes. But, um, that I will put up regularly and I put it up when I need to hear it. And, and then it's always surprising to me how many people say, oh, I'm so glad you put that up. Just simple, you're not nuts and you're not alone. Mm. That's it. You're not nuts and you're not alone. And then people write, but it's interesting. And I, I, I respond on my Facebook page. And people are like, how do you know? <laughs> because you just answered this. You could read. You made a yes. coherent statement. You took the step of writing back. I'm writing back to you. You know, clearly you're not alone because I'm I'm replying to you. And the nuts part, you were able to articulate your own um, sense of uneasiness about your well-being at the moment, which indicates that you're in control of your situation if you don't feel that way. You know, whatever it happens to be. But something in response to it, but feeling like we're not nuts and we're not alone mm-hmm. is sort of like the best thing we could offer each other. And I think humor Let's us do that. Humor is laughing with someone is as close as you can get to somebody else, often without touching them. Mm-hmm. And actually laughing together, the intimacy that comes when you're really looking at somebody and yes. laughing with them, where you're just actually, even with a podcast, when you're laughing, those times when you said, when you're sitting by yourself laughing because somebody, you know, you've just heard something, you've just seen something, even if you're alone, it happened across space and time. You're not even the same present, but you've just had an intimate experience yes. with somebody. They yeah. reached you, they got mm-hmm. you, and you're sharing that laughter with them. That's that's a sense of community. That's a connection with mm-hmm. another human being that mm-hmm. that reestablishes our sense of humanity and therefore makes us stronger in the world to be able to carry whatever comes. Yes, in. yes. Humor as redemptive 
transformative, and healing. Absolutely. And it's best. Mm-hmm. At its best. Yes, that's what it does. What are you hoping people get from Fast Fallen Women? That they're not nuts and they're not alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that whatever secret you think you're carrying, um, mm-hmm. you're not carrying by yeah. yourself. And that for many other people will go, you think that got you into trouble? Look, wait and see. Look, read page 156. Yes. You ain't even in the big leagues. This is what, you know, again, I have yes. young women, we're talking about the sense of perfection. I have young women coming in going, I was so bad today. And I'm like, did you? sleep with your cousin you know what did you and they're like i ate a muffin it's like that's so bad it's really bad you know did you just you know set fire to an entire population of a small indigenous group of people no okay that counts you no. like you had yeah yeah no now you just need to hand them your book and to say (laughs) read chapters 6 8 25 and 32 you're gonna feel a lot better exactly exactly So it it helps put things in people's lives. In perspective. Yes. It's all about perspective. All right, Gina, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. The moment when I realized that I was a person separate from my parents was a really big deal for me. And I think it's a a great question that you ask people. And it has affected the way that I've dealt with everyone around me since then. And it didn't happen until it was in my 30s when I realized that I had identified myself primarily as my mother's daughter my mother who I had lost so early and that I felt um, I needed to make up for um, her sadness. I needed to make up to her, which she didn't get to experience. And I realized at one point that I was as much like my father, who was not a good husband to my mother. They stayed married until she died at age 47. He was not a good husband to her. He was unfaithful. He was, but he loved her, but he was a good father to me and to my brother. And I thought, okay, you can be a good parent while not being a good spouse. Mm-hmm. And that I didn't have to be monogamous. I did not have to be my mother's daughter and not my father's daughter. Mm. And the idea that I didn't have to be monogamous and that I didn't have to judge in the same way, I didn't have to keep trying to make up to my long lost mother, which she was unable to gather and harvest for herself, um, was a really, um, a real moment of the irrevocable, irrevocable yeah, for me. Yeah. It allowed me to move forward in a different way. And I, I would say this, this is still a struggle that I have. This is the, the, the temptation to go back to trying to, um, to put responsibility on what, how can I get over this early loss? How can I, do this is is very hard to overcome. It's hard mm-hmm. to overcome the attraction of trauma and tragedy. It has its own seduction. And to be able to choose to say, I'm in no way does this not show love and respect for my mother, mm-hmm. um, but I'm going to choose to be resilient and I'm going to choose to bring joy into my life and I'm going to choose to go on 
and to try to make my strength available, my peasant strength available to others as I go through life um, is a decision and a choice. Yeah. You are allowed to have a, you're allowed to experience happiness and joy and have the life you want, even though she was not able to. Exactly. And that's, again, that's a, a, it's a day by day um, Mm -hmm. conversation in my head and it Mm -hmm. gets easier over the years. Um, And it, it becomes, it becomes more and more of a pleasure to be able to share the generosity that comes with self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Which you are doing and doing and doing and doing as evidenced by your adoring students who are now friends and family members and, um, and your wonderful empire of uh, literature and compassion. I mean, it's all, it's all there for, you know, I say that with tongue in cheek, it's all there for what you're putting out to the world is to lift everyone up and to help everyone have a different perspective and be able to rewrite, re-narrate, and um, heal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that this is this is really an important conversation yeah. for me, Dr. Yeah. Dan. I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. Gina, tell everyone where they can get the book just out, all your books, all, all of books. your stuff, all of your social media. Let us Every- have it. Everything is there. It's um, you'll you'll put it up. Um, it's the website is Gina Bereka. That's G I N A, B like in Bravo, A B A R R E C A. I always thought if I had a daughter, I'd name her Barbara Rebecca Bereka, just so that when <laughs> you know people would cause like spell that. That'd be B-A-R-B-A-R-A-R-E-B-E-C-C. good. B A R B A R A R E B E C C, and then just you know telemarketers would hang up. I just thought that would be really easy. Um, so Gina Bereka ad.com. So the website, I just had it redone. It's absolutely lovely. It looks great. It is oh, lovely. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm, although I did not, I don't do a great job with that, but Facebook again, I really answer. And I, the books are available every, thank God they're available in all, but you could buy them through target, but I hope you buy them from your local independent booksellers because they keep us going as a community, a culture, and, a, and, and yes. a life, and um, and and please, I answer all my emails. So if somebody has a question, they can write to me, and I promise I'll write back. Awesome, awesome. Fast fallen women, and so much, so much more. Uh, Gina, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you. I hope we'll talk again. I do hope so, and I have a feeling our connecting person will make that happen. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Yes. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please share this show with everyone that you know will benefit. Thank you for being a part of this wonderful community and bring all of your amazing people to our community. It can only get better and better. Thank you for your five-star reviews and all of your support. Do your best to be that person you want your child and any kin to become and ask yourself, that guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. 
Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.